0: We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Levovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing about me is I've always just been, like, hyper-curious. But, like, my notes app just has, like, a ton of just, like— random fragments, like fish sauce prices are up, things like that, just like things I'm noticing or just like question marks of like, why aren't more uh, ice cream packages boxes?
2: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Bettina Mukhlintal is a reporter at Eater and previously wrote memorable stories for Vice and Bon Appetit. Now, I'm a big fan of Bettina's erudite and internet-first journalism and wanted to have her on the show to talk about it all. We discuss her home cooking feeds on Instagram and TikTok and dive into how her natural curiosity drives her to solve some of food's most esoteric questions. Why are so many cakes shaped like domes? Why are reservations for hot tables so impossible to land these days? This is such a fun conversation. I hope you enjoy getting to know one of food media's strongest voices. Bettina McElintill, welcome to the Taste Podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
2: Exciting. I don't first time we've met. Long time, first time, though.
1: Yeah, uh, I feel like you're one of those names that I just like recognize from online, you know, <laughs> which is like everyone. I'm always like, yeah. I always know people sort of by username first and then real name.
2: <laughs> I, I mean, exactly. That's the world we live in in media, and and I think earlier before the pandemic, it was like a little more interaction in within this New York community, but totally. Uh, It's been several years, but it's really great to great to meet you. Yeah, you too. I love, you know, your career has been really great to follow. I mean, you you worked at Vice, you worked at Bon App, and now you are a senior reporter at Eater.
1: Yeah, it's been fun. I sort of never expected that this path would happen for me. So it's just kind of exciting that it's, you know, working out.
2: What do you mean you didn't expect it?
1: Well, so I like, I like, long story short, I went to school thinking I would be a doctor. I was a neuroscience major. uh, And then I like switched to gender studies. So, like, the food writing was never, it was never a thing I like saw on the horizon until it sort of happened.
2: And you, but you worked in the industry while you were in school, right?
1: Yeah. So, I worked in an ice cream shop for uh, like four years which like feels like a really long time yeah. but like now that I'm older I'm like oh that's not actually that much time <laughs> um which really is like oh that sense of perspective but yeah it was a that was a fun job
2: it must have been a great ice cream shop to stick around for 4 full years
1: um well I mean I did try to quit twice yeah um but then I would just sort of bounce around to a different position there um So, yeah, it was, like, fun. It's sort of hard to turn down, like, constant free ice cream, like, always in front of you. Um, I don't really eat ice cream anymore because of it. But, yeah, it was, like, fun at the time.
2: So were you spinning ice cream in the back? Were you making it or were you just scooping and working with customers?
1: Um, So I started out as, like, a barista and a scooper. Yeah. And then I ended up switching to, like, the back and I... Um, was like the ice cream cake maker. So I would like assemble and decorate all the cakes. Wow. Um, and then after that, I sort of switched to being like the front of house manager again. Yeah.
2: Let's shout out the plate. Where was this at?
1: Uh, Tascanini's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Right, right, right. Um, so it's like very much like just a classic Cambridge establishment. Yeah. And
2: so what style of ice cream? Were there yolks in it? Was it?
1: Um, so it depended on the flavor. It was Got sort it. of like all the vanillas and the fruits all had uh, an egg base. But yeah. then a lot of them were sort of lighter.
2: Okay. Um, can you can you say your favorite flavor or is that hard?
1: Um, my favorite flavor was probably Earl Grey. Yeah. Um, but there was also like, so it's like the classic flavor there is this B3. It's brown butter, brown sugar, and mm. brownies. Um, and there were like a few batches when I worked there where they burnt the butter. And so we did like burnt <laughs> butter... Like we did it with burnt butter instead. And like that was one of my favorites because it's so rich. Like you could really only have like one spoonful, but it was really good. That's
2: the best when when you know it's like, wow, this is like butter fat content is high, or you're just eating more than you think. Yeah. Love that about ice cream. But you also worked in a bakery?
1: Uh well, so I worked in a coffee shop after that. Um but yeah, no bakeries, just the coffee shop.
2: Well, I mean, you clearly had an interest in food. I mean, working in an ice cream shop for 4 years you get to see a lot but totally but uh you you were going to be a doctor
1: Yeah, that was the plan. Um until I sort of like got to college and was just like doing organic <sighs> chemistry for 2 years is like not fun. No. Um but yeah, I powered through a ton of like hard science classes before I made the decision that like I just was not going to probably not even going to get into medical school. So yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> Well, smart to, like, you know, cut your losses. Yeah, totally.
1: I wish I'd realized it when I was, like, 18, though, as opposed to, like, you know, 21.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Your crispy egg 420 cooking is on fire. I think it's so delicious. That is your Instagram handle. And I feel like the way you cover food on Instagram is unique, and it's just very appealing. I'm going to go over a few of my favorites. The mujadara. I love that. Uh, Recently, the mujadara. Cold soba. You do some twisty pastas. You do spam and eggs. Um but I wanted to get a sense you know through I'm seeing like all sorts of different cuisines within this Instagram handle So what inspires you to put out these these dishes?
1: Totally. So I think that it's mostly just that I'm like extremely online, right? (laughs) So I've always just seen like tons of different types of foods that people are cooking. And like on that account, I sort of specifically mostly follow other food accounts. So I'm sort of always seeing things that like, you know, look really nice to me. And then I can sort of and then a lot of it is just sort of trying to make my own version of it Mm -hmm. or just trying it out for the first time. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I grew up eating a ton of different foods. Um, So I think that like, you know, I think my palate has always, you know, I've always been sort of like I find like soy sauce and like Asian flavors like I need them every so often to sort of like bring recalibrate, I feel like. Mm -hmm. But then but I sort of do always want to eat like everything just because that's how I grew up.
2: And we'll talk about your your upbringing in the Philippines and your your connection to filipino cuisine um but also i want to get a sense of how you came across that aesthetic of this of this uh instagram account like you've got the overhead you've got the three-quarter you shoot it so well
1: yeah so the vibe is very like i i'm always wearing my blue house crocs you are which are like my like my like designated house shoes and then i sort of always stand by the window in my kitchen and like look down at the bowl um and try to keep it like in the middle of the shot um i think i just like landed on it because i feel like you know, I don't have great lighting in the rest of my apartment. So it was like kind of like the only place where yep. things looked good. Um, and yeah, then I just sort of like did it as a joke a few times, like where you could see the crocs. Um, and then people would always comment on it. And I was like, okay, I have to commit to this like bit. Um, yeah. And now I've been doing it for like two years.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great bit. Um, I have my own pair of house crocs. They're, uh, they're, they're orange with bananas. And my wife Tamara got me them. I love them. But everyone thinks they're like canceled boundary batali crocs. I'm like, <laughs> no, these are banana crocs with a little bit of Orange.
1: Yeah, we got to reclaim the orange croc, I think. Let's reclaim <laughs> it because
2: I think croc shouldn't be canceled. The orange looks nice, but it isn't because of him. Let's talk about your upbringing. You 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 were born in the Philippines and you yeah. moved to the States when you were eight?
1: Uh, no, so I was born in the Philippines and I moved to the States when I was five. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, and I moved to Pennsylvania, like right outside Philadelphia.
2: Okay. So what was food like? like what was your earliest memories of food growing up?
1: So probably my earliest food memory, it's like the most cliche one, which (laughs) is that we had a mango tree in our front yard. Um, So like I had like amazing like Philippine mangoes with like, you know, anytime I wanted them. Um, And the end result is I basically don't eat mangoes in the United States because I feel like nothing else compares. But yeah, we also had a cacao tree. And so inside it has these like the pods have this like Mm -hmm. fleshy white stuff. And so like one of my favorite memories is also just eating that like fleshy white stuff from the cacao pods. And Um, then you're
2: in Pennsylvania, and it's January, and you don't have cacao pods anymore. Yeah, and then we
1: moved to Pennsylvania, and it was very, like, there isn't really an Asian store. And the closest thing to sort of Asian food was just, like, the Chinese buffet. Um, So, yeah, I got very used to sort of eating, you know, Japanese restaurants, Chinese buffets, and then just sort of, like, standard Pennsylvania suburban American food. Yeah. Um, And, like, my mom was really into the Food Network. Oh, yeah. um, And, like, as a result, I was, too. Um and so she just sort of made, you know, whatever looked good and it was a lot of like Martha Stewart inspired stuff, you know.
2: was your mom a good cook? Is she a good yeah, cook? Yeah, she's a very good cook. Great. Yeah. Oh, so and so back to the Food Network. This is like your first introduction to food media, I would imagine. Right. Or do you were you a cookbook head back then, too?
1: Um, I would. Well, so my mom had a lot of cookbooks and she was also very like Martha Stewart living. So it was sort of all of those things. Like if I had nothing else to sort of do, I would like look at her cookbooks. And like there was this one cookbook about pasta shapes that like I read so many times. I think the like images (laughs) from it are like still burned in my head. Um, And so, yeah, it was like it was a mix of all of those things.
2: Really, really interesting. And and I wanted to segue. We have talked about a little bit about your your, you know, education around the sciences. You then you went to work in the bike industry, but then you ended up writing. Uh, I'm probably glossing over some of your other resume, but I just want to get to your journalism because. You know, I've read your work, and it really is strong and has an, a great point of view. I, I just think this— Oh, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And, you know, what what drives you currently, you know, your role at Eater to, to write these stories? And we'll go over some specific ones later.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing about me is I've always just been, like, hyper-curious. Um, and I think, like, for example, like, my Notes app just has, like, a ton of just, like, random fragments. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's, like, Fish sauce prices are up, things like that, just like things I'm noticing or just like question marks of like, why aren't more uh, ice cream packages, boxes, you know, because that was something that my work tried to do briefly. Um, And so I think it's just like I have this like natural curiosity and I think I'm always just like trying to find out the answers to things. And I think it's really fun that, like, I've landed in a job where I can also help, like, sort of other people find this, mm-hmm. the answers to the same sort of, like, sometimes esoteric questions.
2: But, you know, it's exactly why I like doing it as well. It's like it's like a free pass to answer our questions, right? Totally. To be In this world and we can go ring someone up and get it.
1: Yeah. And, like, I think the thing that, like, makes me really excited all the time, like, especially when I think, you know, even though I love my job, you know, there's those weeks where I'm like, oh, I'm like over this. Right. Yeah. But I think the thing that always, like, brings me back to it is, like, when you get to talk to someone about like the same very like niche fixation right and then they're also just like really into like i did a piece about like cakes that are shaped like domes recently Mm -hmm. and got to talk to people who are like really into making cakes that are shaped like domes and it's just that type of stuff where i'm like oh this is really fun um and like you know it's like i'm not necessarily doing the stuff that's like hard and sad but it's it's kind of nice because i get to talk to people about like the thing they're happy about yeah
2: it does uh you know the writing has a lot of verve and joy in it. I think a lot of your reporting, and you you have a real sense of like a thesis. You there's always like a point, right? As Thank opposed you. to just yeah, you're welcome. And do you, like, why aren't we eating ice cream out of boxes?
1: Yeah, exactly. Why,
2: like, have you figured this out?
1: Uh, well, for one thing, like the thing I learned from like actually on the ground doing it is that like it's not easy from a packaging standpoint. Mm. Like, you can buy a round pint really easily from like any number of packaging companies, but like a square box for ice cream is a lot harder. And so, like, for example, we had, like, at my store, we had to, like, fold them all manually, um, which is a huge labor cost because you're sort of having one person who's always just, like, folding boxes. It's like the
2: pizza box guy. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, And, like, also, it's just not as efficient from a production standpoint. So, yeah.
2: it's Because I remember growing up, like, briars, they would have – it would be all boxes. Yeah, exactly. And you don't see those anymore. They're more like tubs and then, of course, the pints.
1: Yeah, and I think – yeah, so I think it just sort of, like, fell out of style. And, like, I think people are always trying to bring it back, but – I don't think anyone's really made a sort of compelling case from a like mass packaging standpoint.
2: You wrote about the crossover of food in the romance novel genre, which I thought was really interesting how, you know, we're seeing more and more narratives around, you know, based around a food like a like a cupcake store. And we've talked about the on this on the show, we've talked about the Hallmark Channel having a lot of food.
1: Yeah, definitely. It. So
2: <laughs> so tell me, what did you discover in that piece? And I'll link to it in the show notes.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that one came about because I was just reading I like. I read a lot and I was going through the book, you know, always looking through the library catalog and just seeing a bunch of things that were like very food focused, Mm -hmm. like a love story and, you know, love stories about food truck owners. Um, And I think, you know, I think that get from getting to talk to, uh, to authors, it really seemed like, first and foremost, it's like, obviously, this way that people are, everyone's just obsessed with food. So naturally, if you're going to write fiction, and you're also like a bread baker, like you might work some of that in there. Um, But also just like, you know, food is so commonly the way that we sort of understand other cultures and people who are sort of different from us, because, you know, it's very easy to sort of explain a dish or like feed someone something. And then they can sort of, you know, that sort of bridges some. of that like divide, mm-hmm. at least initially. Um, and so I think that from talking to authors, it seemed like they were also looking at, at it that way, where it was like, you know, maybe they hadn't seen their culture represented in the romance novel industry, but they could sort of work that in a little bit more by sort of explaining food or having people cook things together in the romance novel.
2: Mm-hmm. That was a really great point that how representation was a big part of this shift to uh, having like a fa. Pho- uh, Storyline. What, what was the, was it, was Pho involved in the actual romancing?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that I, that one's like two families that own Pho restaurants. Yeah.
2: Are you a Hallmark Channel fan yourself?
1: I am not. I've never like really had like access to it. So I mostly just observe other people's cultural commentary on it.
2: <laughs> well, my mother, Sheryl Rodbard is a huge fan and we watch it often when I go visit her. And we definitely have noticed a cupcake shop, we've noticed a bagel shop, we've noticed a pizza parlor. Not not a fuss shot, but that would be good.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably gonna it's probably gonna happen
2: soon enough. I hope so. Listen, like Hallmark Channel, like like get get <laughs> on it. Um, okay, this piece was great. Uh, you read about the return of the hot table, meaning the the hard reservation in New York and other urban centers, and it's so true. Like, it is very difficult to book in some of these places, and I feel like your piece captured the why. And I guess for for me. Is it uh, a supply and demand issue or is it something a little bit – is it something with the technology? What's what's the answer?
1: Yeah, I mean I feel very much like – I mean I think that like – There's always been the idea of like the table that everyone wants. Right. But I think like especially in a sort of sort of like a technology, social media world, there's definitely an element of sort of like cultural capital to going to certain places. And like, you know, just even working in food media, there's all the places that I'm like everyone who works adjacent to me is going to this place. And if I don't go, then I feel like I'm missing out. Right. And I just think that like with influencer culture and TikTok and Instagram, I feel like everyone sort of feels that more than perhaps they used to. Um, and I think like especially sort of like in this, you know, this time, that like everyone actually is sort of more people are trying to go out again and like actually seeing other people. I think there's a lot more weight on sort of where we decide to go is what it feels like to me.
2: Good point. And it is a pressure. I mean, it's it's real, um, you know, he, seeing a, a restaurant like Laser Wolf or a restaurant like Frenchette still get, you know, mentioned in the gram or whatever TikTok constantly at nauseum. It seems Like, you're dining not just for yourself but for others. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you embrace this lifestyle? Is this something that you think is healthy?
1: I mean, I will say that, honestly, I don't embrace it super a ton. Like, I think that I, you know, if I'm, like, if I happen to be up at midnight or something and I think to go to resi for a certain place that's buzzy, you know, that's when I'll do it. But I'm not the – I'm definitely not an, like, alarm setting for the 10 a.m. resi type of person. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's great for the restaurant. So on the flip side, I would say from the restaurant side, it's nice to be one of those 10 chosen restaurants and have a lot of demand.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it definitely seems like, you know, it seems like all of this is helping to bring in business after like restaurants have been, you know, really in need of it. But it does also, I mean, it also sort of, I think, runs the risk of being, you know, social media love is very fleeting and there's always the next place, you know.
2: It's it's an interesting thought like when uh, a restaurant becomes a little more available um does it actually get better in a sense like are we like seeing that restaurant after it's gone through that crush and it's actually settled. I think like restaurants that have settled can oftentimes be the best. That's why the Times kind of waits often.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like one of the people I talked to for that piece said that, you know, she likes to wait, you know, a few months on a yeah. on a really buzzy place. Because then like the lines die down, but also the restaurant's a little bit more in the swing of sort of what it wants to do and like learn, has learned from its lessons and stuff.
2: So as we're entering the fall, which, you know, the tourism season is going to really ramp up even more to New York. I mean, where where are you seeing these hot tables? I just want to ask you, you know, what what's 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 big right now in terms of New York City restaurants?
1: You know, I feel like I feel like Laser Wolf has suddenly become inescapable on my for you page. Yeah, same. Um, And sort of like the Lafayette Bakery croissant is just everywhere. Um, those are like the main things that I'm seeing all the time.
2: Interesting. Yeah, Mike Salmanov uh gonna be on the show soon. I booked him recently and and we will talk about that because yeah, laser wolf in Philly is also hard to book too, right?
1: Yeah. I'm yeah, so I'm like from outside Philly. So every yeah. time I every time I go home, I like try to get a reservation at like that laser wolf or Zahab. And like both of them are just yeah. never. <laughs>
2: It's interesting. Um, and I mentioned Frenchette. It seems like that table is still quite difficult to get.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's one of those places that I haven't even tried. Like, I'll, I'm like, at some point, I'll go. <laughs> yeah.
2: But there's so, I mean, New York City, let's just remind everybody that. You know, this is a city that has restaurants in every borough that are worth venturing out to. And it doesn't have to be on Resi necessarily.
1: Yeah. And I think that like, I don't know, I think it's also nice to remember that like I it's not the end of the world if I don't go to the trendy place when it's, you know, the coolest thing on social media.
2: Yeah. At least for me, that's like helpful. Yeah. I've held off on talking about TikTok because, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I want to talk about your journalism, but TikTok's real and you, you definitely have, have – been involved you've been a creator on tiktok you've covered it um i want to talk about the you know about butter tiktok because it seems like butter TikTok is something that you've that you've investigated a bit. Let's talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, totally. So there's this like chef in London whose whole thing <laughs> I mean, he does other stuff on TikTok, yeah. especially like before the butter thing happened. Um, but yeah, he just does a lot of different compound butters. Um, and some of them are really like some you know, there was like a shrimp butter and there was like a crispy chicken skin butter, um, basically like bone marrow butter, like anything you can imagine he has buttered. Um, and I just find it really fascinating. I mean, I think this is one of those things that it really excels on tiktok is like having a very clear sort of like bit and like a thing Mm -hmm. that people will always come back to you for um and you know you can always sort of predict how it starts like he does like the perfect like little spoonful of the butter and it's always really satisfying to watch Um, but yeah, it's also one of those things where you see it and you think this is pretty simple. This is butter. Like in theory, I could make this, but I'm never going to, I'm just going to sit there and scroll. And it's like 2am, you know,
2: you're there at 2am and it's just, it's making your, it's just like soothing your brain, seeing all those butters being scooped.
1: So, so yeah, I think that's like, but then like the funny thing about how like TikTok works, right. Is like, I didn't write that, that long ago. It was like maybe a month ago, but I feel like, you know, it's, it's not like the hottest trend at this point like just everything cycles so quickly yeah
2: we've moved on i think back to compound butters what a great thing to have right like to actually have a compound butter yeah like available i mean bone marrow butter not for me i mean it seems difficult but having a chicken skin butter in your freezer not bad
1: yeah they all sound amazing and like everything he does with the butters looks good which like is the which is also nice right because you see the butter become this other thing that like looks delicious
2: but you like tiktok right Um, I
1: do really like TikTok and like bringing it back to like my writing. I also think TikTok is just a really like it is sort of the space where like new food culture is happening on the Internet. And I think a lot of people have historically not taken it super seriously because, you know, like the early days of YouTube, it just seems like one of those things you do just to waste time and stuff or out of like navel gazing or just, you know, posting too much. But I think that TikTok is actually changing a lot of sort of trends um, and sort of like it's it really is mediating how a lot of like people, especially young people, are like interacting with food culture or learning to cook or understanding restaurants.
2: Can't You can't say it enough. I fully agree. We've mentioned on the, on the show before we've had TikTok creators on here. It's been an ongoing conversation because I agree fully it democratizes food in a cool way. It's highly entertaining. But I, I, I have to say... I feel like it's hard to cook from TikTok.
1: I think partially I think what really excels on TikTok is stuff that is like simple and doesn't require a ton of explanation. So like if you think about like the easy example is like the Emily Marco salmon bowl, right? That's like it's like three components. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's like the rice, the salmon and like the avocado or the kimchi or whatever. Um, And so it's like stuff like that where you don't actually need to sort of explain things too much to people. You just sort of show them like three things happening in Mm -hmm. succession essentially. I feel like that's the type of stuff that really does well because it's like it's easier to cook that, right? Like it's harder to make the bone marrow butter dish. That's more
2: just like food porn. Yeah, it's
1: more sort of like entertainment.
2: Yeah, entertainment. But then there's real service. And I guess it's like a mood board for me, Mm -hmm. right? I mean you're getting these ideas. You're seeing the three components. I agree fully like three components all put together. You maybe riffing on it. It's maybe for a little bit more of an advanced cook.
1: I think it depends. I think the I mean, I think that like I think I probably have a more diversified food feed than most people because I'm like interacting with so many videos that I see. Um but yeah, I think it's mm-hmm. easy to find like all skill levels yeah.
2: in. What about your own creations on TikTok? What do you what are you looking to do yourself?
1: Um, you know, I like when I can I sometimes I try so I try to like TikTok my own lunches, right? Yeah. Every so often. But it's it's hard. It's a lot of work. Um and You know, I think that, like, it is also sort of frustrating because it's hard to sort of figure out, like, what's going to get views. And I think that I try not to get the view stuff too much in my head. um, But it is kind of demoralizing when I, like, post something that I think was really good or I think I did a really good job on the video and then it, like, doesn't do well. Yeah. Um, so then I always end up, like, taking a break from TikTok again.
2: Because, yeah, I, it's really unpredictable what, what what pops and what doesn't. Yeah. I think I had, like, a, a shot of, like, Kawhi Leonard. I was at a Nets game. I shot, like, Kawhi Leonard doing, like, a, a free throw. It was really boring. And it, like, got, like, 48,000. But then some, like, real gems, some real fire, like, totally got, like, 300.
1: Yeah, you never know. Like, I think the thing that I made that did the best was, like, literally an egg on rice. Um egg and which is funny because like then i would like some of the comments i got were like this is so simple what was the point of even posting this and then i'd get other comments that were like recipe and i was like <laughs> like it's an
2: egg <laughs> god i love your comment voice it's so great
1: <laughs> but um but yeah so it's like you could never sort of figure out like I, at least, and I don't care enough to sort of hone a technique here, but yeah, it's always sort of a black box to me.
2: <laughs> Is there another category that you're interested in TikTok outside of food that hits your uh, for you page?
1: Um, well, I mean, at the moment, I like I really like this account called the Snail Hospital. Um, it's just like snails eating things. I guess it's food adjacent. <laughs> yeah, um, there's
2: consumption of food, and in- but yeah, it's like snails based. very
1: slowly eating things. Plant
2: based diet, yeah.
1: I think I just really like. I I do watch a lot of homesteaders and like home renovation TikTok. Um, In that same way that like HGTV is fun, even Mm -hmm. though I'm like never buying a house, I Mm -hmm. like to critique everyone else's choices.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's usually bad and worse just being a snob. Uh, But it's also, I love love TikTok. I'm into like airplane TikTok, like uh, airplanes taking off from JFK and LAX.
1: Oh, fascinating. And then
2: also like this guy, his job is to take planes that are old from like Kazakhstan to uh, Russia or from mesa arizona to hawaii and he flies these like 35 year old jets
1: wow see that's the thing i really like about tiktok is like plain tiktok i think is never going to come up on my feed but i love that like <laughs> it goes to the right people who want to watch plain things you know
2: it's it's great. <laughs> I, I, yeah it, it's it's a it's wonderful i love tiktok it's it's just wonderful I, I mean when it, it, until it's not
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, I think it's definitely the most exciting social media platform and everything else feels sort of stayed at the moment and, like, just derivative. And I think TikTok at least still is able to bring, like, something that feels new, even just in the way that, like, they approach memes and things like that.
2: Yeah. Let's talk about fall cookbooks. I know Eater is always covering cookbooks and planning you know previews, and you're getting advances, and we're we're kind of we're recording this in early August, and just when the the cookbook galleys are are landing, it's exciting times. So, are there any fall cookbooks that you're particularly excited about?
1: Yeah, so I'm really excited about Hannah Cho's The Vegan Chinese Kitchen. Um, that one I think is just like beautiful, but it's also just like, I cook mostly plant based, um, and like vegetarian, but, so I think that's, you know, it's always nice to get more inspiration, but I think that one's also just really interesting in terms of like, you know, digging into sort of the history of vegan cooking, um, and helping us see that it's not like this new thing and it's actually like rooted in all of these traditions. Um, and then I'm also really excited about Frankie Gaw's, uh, first generation, um, which is, so I think, you know, I think there's been this, like, push of cookbooks that sort of really looks at the way, like, people who are, like, first and 1.5 and second generation sort of, like, understand identity through food. And I think that one's also just really beautiful. Um And I'm also just really stoked on the, like, U.S. release of Ruby Tando's Eat Up. Yeah. Or, I mean, Cook As You Are, Eat Up. Eat up think, was a previous one, Eat yeah. Up, I think, is... American release this summer mm-hmm. um, and cook as you are is November. But I just really like she I think she has a very sort of like approachable, you know, if you make the food and it's ugly, it's fine. Like it's still going to yeah. be enjoyable to eat. Um, So I think that's a very nice cookbook.
2: Love Ruby. And, you know, Hannah, we're doing a feature. It should be up by the time this airs on on her on that book. I think it's a wonderful oh, book. Yeah. And Frankie, you know, that book, I, I have it on my desk upstairs. It is. I love it. It is absolutely wonderful and and I think it's the world is going to get to see Frankie for the first time many mm-hmm. and I think it's a really exciting book those are great picks yeah thank you what do you like in cookbooks like what do you what gets you excited
1: So I will say that I honestly don't cook from cookbooks a ton. Um, So I just I really like reading them. So as like as a result, I like anything that has like, you know, lots of essays or like really narrative head notes and stuff like that, Um, because I'm not necessarily going to like use it as a resource. But I love the like the person behind it. And I love the inspiration of the recipes.
2: That is the modern cookbook buyer, I believe, Foley, I think there's certainly going to be folks who cook everything from a book, but that's, those are rare breeds. I think you yeah. really want cookbooks to have a narrative voice or just cool head notes. Yeah, and I know? think just
1: like going back to like my relationship to cookbooks growing up is like I think they're just really fun to read. It's like nice to look at the pictures. Yeah. I look at them a lot while I'm eating. You know, it's nice to sort of like just to- – And like partake in food in both forms. (laughs) Oh,
2: definitely. Well, this segues to my final question. We ask all guests in the Taste Podcast. If you could work on a cookbook or food culture book project without the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited funds. Or The Burden of Time, meaning you have no deadline. Can you imagine not having a deadline for a book? (laughs) But Tina, what would that cookbook be?
1: I mean, I would love to do, I think, a really big cookbook just across the Filipino diaspora. You know, I think, you know, we've had Philippine uh, last year and there was, you know, Angela, uh, Nicole Ponce, I'm Mm -hmm. Filipino. Um, But I would love to sort of think about the Filipino diaspora more broadly and more globally. Um, You know, like what does Filipino food look like in London and what does it look like in Dubai and like all of these places where there are Filipinos? Um, I'd love to see sort of, you know, what are the foods we're bringing there and how are we like adapting things to those areas?
2: So let's get into that a little bit. I I, I didn't talk to you about Filipino cuisine because we had so many great topics, including butter tip TikTok. (laughs) But um, what are you seeing in London that might you might not be seeing in the United States in terms of Filipino cuisine?
1: You know, I think it's just that, like, everyone everywhere is doing such – Food that feels so specific to them and you know i think that you know like for example in london i'm like thinking of this one restaurant i i'm totally blanking on the name right now unfortunately but the chef is budgie montoya i'm Mm -hmm. pretty sure and like it's sort of like filipino fine dining and it's like it just the certain presentations of things are unlike anything i've ever sort of had but Mm -hmm. the flavors sound very familiar and i think that like if i ate it it would taste familiar um, but so, yeah, it's really just that, like, seeing people are doing such different things everywhere, but we're all sort of, like, circling the same memories and ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah, the hyper-creativity uh, of Filipino cuisine in, in, in the United States, I'm unfamiliar with it outside of the States, is just it's exciting to see.
1: Yeah, and I think that, like, especially if we were looking globally, I'd love to see, like, you know, what are people who, who immigrated from other parts of the Philippines than where I'm from? Like, what did they bring mm-hmm. with them and, like, what did they cook?
2: Bettina Macalintal. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Eliza Abarbanol is back. What up?
0: Hi. How are you?
2: I'm pretty good. I've been reading the New York Times recently. Do you read the New York Times?
0: I've heard of it, yes. <laughs>
2: the Grey Lady. Uh, I've heard of it, yeah. It's, I, I get it. I, I subscribe to I three print versions a week.
0: Wow. what's What are the three days?
2: So I try to get Wednesday only, obviously, because it's the best day of the week if you like food.
0: Okay. Wednesday yes. is
2: food. Yes. But I could not do that. They wouldn't let me. They would give me Monday through Friday, or they would give me Monday through Friday plus Saturday, or Monday through Friday plus Sunday, which is seven days a week. I was just weekend only, so I'm Friday, Saturday, Sunday.
0: That's good. I'm... I'm online only, but I do try to steal them when they've been out on the stoop for too long. (laughs) Too
2: long. Yeah. Like when you get a Sunday, like on Saturday, and you get like that extra like day before it hits like everyone else. Yes. Right? That's like the best part about the New York Times. Yes. Okay. So joking aside, there's two articles in the New York Times that I wanted to talk to you about because both, I, I think we both have kind of thoughts about these topics, these concepts. So the first one, this article, The Death of Hot Coffee. In the New York Times. Yes. So I have some to summarize. Um, they The writer took this like kind of uh, look at Starbucks in particular and was like, Starbucks is selling mostly cold beverages. 75, 75% of their beverages are cold. And the writer extrapolated that to say that maybe our culture is not so into hot coffee.
0: Right. I've been thinking about this a lot, and I actually did a poll on my Instagram very unofficially. Oh,
2: interesting. What What did you find out?
0: Well, the poll maybe we should get to in a second because mm-hmm. it's about a specific subset of right, coffee right, right. drinkers. But I, I was drinking my cold coffee this morning and thinking about this. And I guess my first question, is this like year over year? Is it seasonal? Because obviously it's iced coffee season right now.
2: That data wasn't in the piece, and I'm curious about it myself. I was like, maybe they're trying to skew the data, a little bit of a straw man argument, not to hate on the writer. It got a lot of clicks. It was sent to me by a couple people in my life, including my wife Tamar. She's like, did you see this article?
0: Well, I think it makes sense because Starbucks is about convenience when it comes to coffee. And iced coffee is objectively more convenient than hot coffee because hot coffee has a really limited amount of time when you can drink it, right? Maybe it's too hot at first and then it's drinkable. And then if you forget about it, then it's lukewarm and it's kind of gross. Whereas iced coffee is inherently drinkable from the beginning. And also it's easy to drink a lot of it at once. Quickly.
2: You're done with your experience. Your coffee experience is over in like 90 seconds to four minutes.
0: Yeah. And I also have found myself like gulping my iced coffee in the morning because I need all the help I can get. You're like a
2: 45 second. That's all it takes.
0: Yeah. If I get iced coffee with another person invariably i have finished mine before they have
2: yeah i'm with you my thought is this uh starbucks hot coffee fucking sucks <laughs> it's terrible it's just uniformly bad and i was disturbed and i talked to uh tonks from yes please uh, talk meaning uh we had an exchange on social media um and he summarized it as well he said yeah maybe starbucks isn't so great that's the reason why cold drinks are better cold drinks make kind of not great espresso taste better and so my biggest problem is like I love hot coffee like pour over hot coffee is the expression of coffee for me this is exactly how you should drink coffee if you care about the farmer the roaster etc cetera, etc cetera.
0: well I I guess I care about everyone but what I care about the most is Getting caffeinated as quickly as possible, sure, sure, and, and sure. iced coffee does that for me.
2: <laughs> right. No. So, I mean, you're a fan of iced coffee. I'm definitely a fan of iced coffee. I'm my biggest issue is this headline is like this framing and like this idea that maybe someone is like click looking at them like, wow, hot coffee is like out of style.
0: Yeah, it's funny because coffee is something that to me like transcends trends. Like, yes, yeah, so you can talk about second wave, third wave coffee, or pour over, or things like that. But it's, I think it's really like. If you're a coffee drinker, you basically need it to function and like mm-hmm. you're going to take any coffee over no coffee.
2: Agree, and it is a drug. Like let's let's yes. be honest, it's a drug.
0: The most popular drug in the United States maybe.
2: Probably. So what's up with your poll?
0: Oh, so the the poll was specific because there's an aside in the article about how iced coffee has become a big part of queer culture of people saying like iced coffee is gay, which is um, a meme that I've encountered a lot. And as someone that identifies as queer and a lot of people in my life do, I thought it would be funny to do a poll to ask people uh, if they thought iced coffee was queer. Um, and the last time I checked, which is on the train coming over here, it was sixty forty, yes to no or maybe like 67-33, ah. something like that, um, which I don't know if like that actually means anything. I think it's kind of like a joke that like. Queer people take what they like and say that it is queer because if you like it, like yeah. that can be like abba or <laughs> Cher or carabiners. Like no one, like straight people who <laughs> use all of those things. Yes. interesting. <laughs> but <laughs> like good
2: pairing of uh, of items, yeah. You know, I'm trying to have
0: a broad swath <laughs> yeah, of the not queer just community. food items and
2: and 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 pop stars. Um,
0: yes. Um, so. I think that, like, maybe it is just, like, you want something to be attached to yourself, so you say it that way. But it is definitely, like, a meme that you can encounter in the same way that also, like, you know, I think, like, the gayest coffee order you could order would be, like, an iced lavender oat milk latte. I
2: love it. And it's all good-hearted and good-natured. I yes. feel like this this meme. It's not pointing fingers or trying to be pejorative or negative, right? It's, no. It, it's it's good.
0: It's because you like queer you like being queer and you like iced coffee exactly so you're taking it
2: venn diagram kind of situation yes um yeah we, we can't really come to consensus here i feel like um you know maybe it was clickbait potentially
0: well, we're talking about it, so it it was effective. Sure. And, you know, maybe ask me again in January, and I'll, and I'll be more in favor of hot coffee. But right now, I'm enjoying um, drinking my cold brew while it still feels seasonally Agree appropriate. Agree fully.
2: Second story in the New York Times was written by Tejil Rao, big fan of hers, love Tejal. She's a friend. I think her journalism is great. And I, I think she nailed the story about the recipe reply guy in many ways. Mm-hmm. I do have a s- slight question about it. But um, Eliza, can you, in your words, define the recipe reply guy?
0: Well, I think we need to start with the reply guy, which I don't, yeah. know, I don't know if you have a good definition of that. I would say a reply guy is someone that like, responds to everything with kind of like, random questions that don't actually have to do with it, and they're just like kind of always in your DMs, always responding to something. Does that feel right?
2: Very active uh, social media user who wants to stir shit up or just generally wants to be part of a conversation that maybe that individual should not be part of, potentially.
0: Yeah. So the recipe reply guy is someone who (laughs) comments like recipe question mark or maybe many question marks like on any picture of food that they see on social media. And the, the dislike in the article is that people feel entitled to having a recipe for every piece of food content that they see online. And um, I think what many of the creators in the piece are saying is that like that's not really taking into consideration the amount of effort that goes into writing a recipe that like that's a lot of additional labor to ask somebody for when they're just posting a picture of their like tuna salad sandwich for lunch.
2: Agree. I think that's a great sum- summary of what the recipe reply guy recipe question mark in the comments of Instagram. Like my question about the piece is um is the comment recipe question mark not literally the person wondering if they could have a recipe but almost like an extension of the like or thumbs up it's Mm -hmm. like a way of saying i love this video or this photo of um of like a tagine so much that i'm gonna like go in there and actually say recipe question mark That's maybe a counterpoint to it being like just people who are lazy and not respectful of recipe development. I feel like people are ultimately super lazy on social and it's like mixed messages when it comes to things. And I feel... Personally, that maybe the reply question mark might be actually a form of endearment or a sign of endearment,
0: yeah. you know, like, I've been on the receiving end of having yeah. people comment this. and um I don't make my livelihood off of recipe development. So that's a different opinion. But it doesn't really bother me. Like I think that it's somebody showing that they are interested in cooking this thing. and And maybe as a developer, it's a signal that, like, oh, this little thing that you didn't really think was that big of a recipe, actually, like you could spend more time and write it up, and there would be interest in it.
2: You're right. It's feedback. It's like a feedback loop, and you're getting the feedback from maybe this is an interesting um, idea for a recipe. We talk about recipe development a lot in our editorial meetings, and we, um, if somebody said recipe question mark for one of my posts, and I was like, oh, maybe we should assign that. But I, I see Tazil's point, and I see the annoying nature of the recipe reply guy. I see how it's so annoying.
0: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like when, like, let's say you go talk to your grandparents and, and they don't understand what your job is you know it's like a version <laughs> of that that like <laughs> your job isn't to provide recipes for everything or like that people don't know how much work goes into a recipe that you would put out that's been cross-tested um, and yeah. edited and like meant to succeed in every context but sometimes I do just write out in a comment like loosely you know nothing is measured but like this was the method of how I did that thing and Um, To me, I think, like, that doesn't take that much time out of me. But I'm also not, you know, that's not happening to me every day.
2: Jesse Sparks uh, is quoted in the piece. I'm going to quote him. It all boils down to the people needing to remember there's a person on the other side of the screen who deserves space and support, time, and rest. So I think I agree with Jesse. Jesse is saying that we as commenters need to realize that there's actually a human being that created that. And you popping in with recipe question mark might actually discount that human element.
0: Right. Maybe you could. Say, oh, this looks so delicious! I would love to make this. Right. Like, there's a nicer way to ask for it. But I also think, you know, a lot of creators are talking about how social media algorithms are changing these days, and it's hard to get traction. And if you're getting comments on a post, like you could see that as a as a positive, regardless definitely. of what they say.
2: Net positive. If like you're looking at engagement over likes and follows, which is definitely a metric that most social media ma- managers look at. The engagement's number one. This is actually helping. Your engagement, if someone's like even saying one word, repl- recipe, question mark.
0: Yeah, that, that, I think that's a take we could have. That's
2: a take. <laughs> okay, the other part of the piece, which is slightly the second, uh, the B story, and this is much more to write about this, is the idea of uh, just give me the recipe. Mm. And that that's a, a topic um, that gets brought up often on Twitter and other places when, um, you know, like somebody of note who maybe isn't in the food media consumption zone, maybe a celebrity like Mindy Kaling, for example, because she did this maybe a year ago, <laughs> was like kind of complaining about just give me the recipe for like a personal essay piece about something. I don't know the specifics of that. It's infuriating for people who do this for a living because it's very rude. It's extremely rude to be like just give me the recipe. Um so Tajal got some got some good meat about that topic. Would do you have any thoughts on like just give me the recipe, guys?
0: Yeah, just give me the recipe, guys. I I think that is such a meme in food media and online in general and I think that um especially if it's a free recipe, right? Like, which most of these blogs are, like... Usually. Yeah. Um, Sometimes they're getting ad revenue or, like, SEO boosts, as this article mentions, from having um, a longer piece that's attached to it. But also it feels like it's not enough that you're getting a free recipe, but also that you have to scroll for 10 seconds to reach it. Like, that's not that egregious of an issue for people to have. And I think it's a larger question about, like, how do we value... um, feeding ourselves and like all of the time and effort that goes into that and like knowing how to cook something, um, is a skill, right. That like not everybody has. And that if you're trying to learn that from somebody else, um, like the level of maybe entitlement that like you also need to learn it and in two seconds without (laughs) having to like read anything about the development process or like that person's life.
2: Yeah. it's, It's a great point. I think it's a great, um, assessment of like people are pretty entitled with these recipes and, I think we're in a moment where time is really precious, so, like, we get annoyed. I think one thing I want to add is, you know, when, you, when you're when you Googling on your phone and there's a burning or something like a cooking, maybe it's burning. Yeah. And you want to, like, you're going to, like, a, a plan B or something and you try to find the recipe or try to find a story and you get into, like, a site. And, like, there's so many ads that have been poorly placed. Like, the UX is extremely bad on mobile. Mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes, like, a Mindy Kaling or somebody's, like, just give me the recipe might actually just be encountering a lot of garbage with, like, ad units on their phone. And they're just like, I need to find the recipe because my shit's burning. And I've had that feeling. I'm like, just give me the recipe because I've been super frustrated. So I wonder if it's, like, people just commenting on how recipes are consumed on their phones.
0: Yeah, I also think there are some, you know, websites or blogs that um, they do have a lot of things before you get to the recipe, and then the recipe is formatted in a weird way, and you can't really tell where the recipe begins and ends. You know, when I was um, growing up, I remember learning, like, how to do a research paper and how to find a reputable source, and my teacher saying that Wikipedia wasn't good enough, and Mm. I think there's a version of that with finding a recipe that, like, it's a skill to know, like oh, this is a website, this is like the New York Times or Bon Appetit or a publication that's um, cross-tested that you know it's going to work. And then there are places that are less reliable. And if you don't have the skill set to find those, um, then it is stressful and frustrating and it might not work as well.
2: Yeah, good point. Liza Barbernell, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.